Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. It's December, and the worst year in bond market history is just about over. Accordingly, 2023 will be less about rate risk and more about credit risk. Don't unfasten your seatbelt just yet. This week, we're going to respond to three questions that seem to be top of mind to investors as we head into the new year. One, credit spreads. Why aren't they wider? Two, catalysts. We'll explore those to the upside and those to the downside. And three, economic indicators. We'll walk through those worth paying attention to. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. Credit spreads. With two-thirds of economists surveyed forecasting a recession in the U.S. in 2023, and most forecasting a rare global one as well, you would think that credit spreads would reflect those probabilities. Fact of the matter is, they don't. Why is that? Well, investment-grade spreads have widened materially off 2021 stimulus-fueled lows, but currently sit inside the average of the 10-year period post the GFC up until COVID. Moreover, were 30 basis points inside the recent wides set in October. In high yield, same story, where current OAS of 448 basis points is nowhere near the 800 to 1,000 basis points we typically see in a recession. In fact, we sit well inside levels reached in the past when investors have gotten anxious, but where the economy is still firmly in expansion territory. Think first quarter of 2016 when the Fed started its tightening cycle, or 2014's euro crisis. Now, we would attribute the reason spreads have held in to three things. I like to think of things in threes. One, Tina's exit. Now, given that investment-grade yields were sub-2.5% and high-yield yields sub-6% for much of COVID, you couldn't at the time blame investors for subscribing to Tina, as in there is no alternative to U.S. stocks. And that's all changed, of course. Investment grade and high yield yields are now at or around 6% and 9% respectively, more than enough, it seems, to attract healthy bids into these markets. Two, recession still seems distant. Investors seem to forget that central banks tighten when demand is running hot. So even though the economy is clearly slowing, the effects of this unusually well telegraphed demand destruction are still off into the future, with the notable exception of housing. With no clear and present danger, and still some prospect of a softer landing, enough investors are clearly comfortable with all but the most risky credits at the moment. And three, supply has fallen off. After drinking from the proverbial fire hose of new issues in the federally backstopped credit markets of 2020 and 2021, investors are now facing supply that is materially lower due to issuance pull forward we saw in those years and today's rapidly decelerating growth forecast. All of a sudden, supply could actually be characterized in some ways as scarce, or at least more normal. And we still believe the gravitational pull for spreads is wider into 2023 as the economic contraction becomes more evident, but our expectations for a mild recession should keep spreads inside of past recessionary peaks. All right, on to our second question. What are the catalysts driving spreads? 
All right, let's start with the downside ones, forces that could pressure spreads wider. First off, let's assume that our base case is a contracting economy that ends up in a mild recession. Things that will make things worse include, but are not limited to, as the lawyers would say, the following. Weaker than expected corporate earnings growth. Risk asset valuations, both credit and equities, stand on the back of corporate earnings. Those earnings are at record levels, benefiting from supercharged economic growth in 2021 that has driven margins to the highest level in 50 years. Consensus calls for S&P 500 earnings to rise 4% in 2023. Now, that doesn't square up with past experience in recessions when earnings typically fall 20% or so. A decline of that magnitude would surely change investor sentiment and risk asset valuations. Now, also on our list of downside catalysts is unexpectedly persistent high inflation. The expectation is for inflation to fall back toward target in the back half of 2023. If it is slow to correct, the Fed has made it clear it will continue to tighten financial conditions, and that won't square up well with current valuations. Disruption to energy and food markets. The Russia-Ukraine war has the ability to further disrupt key commodities markets. We'll watch it closely. Financial instability. In a heavily indebted world, corrections and downturns expose imbalances in the financial system that, in their most destructive form, could trigger contagion. The UK's LDI episode and the recent crypto meltdown have not risen to that level of disruptive capability, but investors should be mindful of what's possible. It is a heavily indebted world. Financial instability can turn a garden variety downturn into a crisis. China growth shock. China's zero-COVID policy, coupled with President Xi's common prosperity restructuring of society, continue to hamper global economic growth. All of those, we think, could be further catalysts to pressure spreads wider. Our upside catalysts include China relaxing its zero-COVID policy. Doing so would unleash a key global growth engine. A mild winter in Europe. So far, so good. Let's hope it continues as it lessens the impact of the energy crisis. Inflation moderates. Stop the tightening. That's what every risk investor wants to hear. A Russian-Ukrainian ceasefire and solution. Allow supply chains to repair and a new world order to crystallize. Removing uncertainty is always good for risk. Over the near term, because of the recession likelihood, those catalysts, from our perspective, are skewed to the downside. All right, on to our third question. What are the most important indicators to watch? Well, this is an easy one. Or is it? Sure, it's all about inflation and the degree to which central banks will tighten in response to said inflation. Got it. So non-farm payrolls, consumer price index, and retail sales. Simple. Maybe. But how will we dimension the effects of tightening? Ultimately, it comes down to confidence on the part of consumers and businesses and their ability to borrow and spend and their respective willingness to take reasonable risks. And that really starts with corporate earnings growth. Consumer spending may account for two-thirds of economic output, but businesses create the goods and services that drive employment of those consumers. So we pay close attention to corporate earnings growth and the drivers of that growth, most notably margins. For timely insight into the health of businesses, 
We look to the ISM PMIs, both manufacturing and services. We pay close attention to new orders and sentiment. At small businesses, we look to the NFIB surveys. At large ones, CEO surveys by the conference board and the business roundtable. We also look to the regional Federal Reserve manufacturing surveys such as Chicago, Philly, and Dallas. Housing, of course, is important. We look to single-family permits and starts for momentum signals. And we monitor credit crunch through changes in spreads, of course, but also through surveys like the Fed's one solicited from senior loan officers. On the consumer side, sentiment surveys will check both current and future expectations. On the labor front, jobless claims and continuing claims are good real-time markers. And in this cycle, excess savings and household net worth built up directly or indirectly via stimulus are important supporters of consumer spending. So it's a bit more than just trying to size up the Fed's reaction function. The real uncertainty credit markets face is the length and depth of the downturn. That requires a bit more work. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, credit spreads. They're not wider because the recession hasn't hit yet. Two, catalysts. Yes, there are some to the upside. And three, economic indicators. Corporate earnings growth tops our list. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest research and ratings reports. See you next week.